Well, well, good morning, everyone. It is a pleasure. It is really good to be back together again and to be uh, digging into the Word with you after uh, a little bit of a vacation for my family and I. Uh, I want to thank Kevin and Will for uh, their hard work and their good messages that they shared with us these last couple weeks uh, from the book of Ephesians of who we are in Christ and then what does that mean? What kind of an impact does that have on us? And if you did not get a chance to hear either of those two, or certainly both of those two messages, I do want to encourage you to go back, listen to those, consider those things, uh, because very important for us as believers to know who we are in Christ and what kind of an impact that has on us as uh, people here on the earth. Uh, we'll finish that study actually in a few weeks. Uh, first week of August, Jeff Simpson's going to be sharing with us uh, on the final chapter of that book and sort of the significance of it, kind of wrap it all up for us. So, But today we're going to be going back into the book of Mark. Uh, and so if you would please open your Bibles this morning to Mark uh, chapter 15. It's what we're going to be considering and looking at. Uh, at some point in our study, we're also going to be looking at in depth uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, and so sometime between now and the end of our study, if you want to also flip to Isaiah chapter 53 and, and maybe put a little index card there or a ribbon or whatever may have your pen to kind of hold your space there so we can come back to that uh, in a timely manner later on. But right now we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 15. Let's pray together. Father, we ask for your spirit to enter into this time. And Lord, that you would take this passage, um, a foundational passage uh, in our uh, faith, and you would impress it upon our hearts in a deep and in a fresh way. Lord, you'd fill me with your spirit. You'd use me uh, as, we as I communicate your word. Lord, bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 15. Now, let me just remind you a little bit about where we've been. Obviously, together, I haven't been with you for the last couple of weeks, and so I want to remind you in that regard. But I also want to remind you from the perspective of we, we took five weeks in uh, chapter 14. And chapter 14 essentially looks at the final night of Jesus' life, which means we've been considering the final night of Jesus' life for the last seven weeks now. Uh, and so you, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you've forgotten some things. Let me just remind you of a couple of those things. Uh, just over a month or so ago, we considered how Jesus celebrated the Passover meal uh, with his disciples and that it was during that meal, he took an aspect of that meal and sort of transformed it into what we have come to know as the Lord's Supper. It was also during that meal that Jesus said to each of those disciples, he says that tonight each of you will fall away from me this evening. You'll flee from me, some of the other versions share it as here. So that was on that final night of Jesus' life. We learned about that in Mark 14. It was also in Mark 14 that Jesus took, uh, he predicted how Peter was going to not just fall away from him, not just flee from him, but even go so far as to deny him three times. And so we saw that uh, in the latter portion of, or right in the middle so, of Mark chapter 14. It's in Mark chapter 14 where Jesus will spend the final evening of his earthly life into even the next morning perhaps praying in the garden. And it was while he was there praying in the garden that some have said it this way that the cross of Christ was won there. 
Because you recall that Jesus says there in his prayer, he says, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass. And then he says that important phrase, Mark 14, 36 tells us, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so there's a whole series of events, a whole bunch of things. We almost took each one of those things in separate studies that are going on in chapter 14. It's packed with these different events. And so uh, I suspect you've forgotten some of them. Now, chapter 14 ends with Jesus on trial. Uh, and I pointed out a few weeks back that Jesus would undergo about six different trials. We can't say for certain, but it's certainly clear that he's moving around from one place to the other. And if we put the pieces together, it looks as if he has six different trials, three that are going to be before Jewish, Jewish officials and three that are going to be before Roman officials. And the end of chapter 14 appears to be the first and second trial that Jesus will undergo before those Jewish officials. Mark doesn't really dig uh, too much into it. He doesn't get too very specific about it. And he doesn't transition in his writing um, and then it moved from this to that. He doesn't really get into all those specifics. He just sort of gives us this idea. And so we have to look at a lot of the other Gospels to begin to piece all of these things together. But the closing verses of Mark 14 seem to be the first and second trial before the Jewish officials. In chapter 15, verse 1, we have what appears to be the third and final appearance before those officials. So 15.1, it says this, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priest, they held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now we know that Jesus first appeared before Annas, John chapter 18, verse 13 tells us that. Annas was kind of, he was sort of the retired high priest. We might call him the high priest emeritus of Jerusalem. And he still had a lot of power within the city of Jerusalem. And so the first trial that Jesus has is before Annas. Then we learn from the book of Matthew that Jesus went from Annas to Caiaphas, who was the actual high priest in that particular day. And we learn from Matthew's gospel that in addition to Caiaphas, there were a number of the scribes and the elders. So Matthew 26 says, Then those who seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. That was the second meeting or trial that Jesus underwent um, that evening, that final evening of his life. Now, uh, in our verse that we just looked at, chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus is going to have the third meeting. And this is going to be before, you can see it there in the middle of the verse, this is going to be before the whole council. Another way we could say that is, and you've probably heard this term, this is the Sanhedrin, the 71 Jewish rulers uh, appointed to rule over, govern the Jewish people in the first century there. And so uh, Jesus will go before them in this third and final trial before the Jewish leaders. And he is going before them either because some of the council members were not present in that second meeting with Caiaphas. That's possible. However, if you look at verse 53 of Mark 14, it says there all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. And so it could be that, that not all were present, so we have to have a big meeting where everyone is at. Or it could be that they gather in the morning, and you see that there in verse 53, in verse 1 of chapter 15, as soon as it was morning, it could be that they gather in the morning because, as we pointed out a few weeks back, 
the Sanhedrin was not allowed to meet at night. They weren't allowed to have trials, and any decision that was reached at a, a nighttime meeting wasn't binding anyway. And so they all have to gather once more in the morning to sort of legitimize uh, what they had decided the evening before. But one way or another, Jesus is now in this third trial before the Jewish leaders. As I've been saying, Mark doesn't provide us with uh, any real details of that third and final gathering. Mark doesn't provide us with a lot of details, really, of any of the, the trials that Jesus underwent. We learn most of what we learn from the other four Gospels here. What Mark does tell us in chapter 15, 1, is that the chief priest, they held a consultation. They, they had another trial um, that day. They tried to come up with the charge that they would officially um, present against the Lord. If you are interested in more details of this third and final trial, then I'll turn your attention Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 verses 66 to 71 give us greater details of this third trial, which Mark simply just says they held a consultation. One of those details we read in Luke 22, verse 70. And there what we see is that Jesus is asked, point blank, this question, are you the son of God then? That's the question. They, and they, they want to bring Jesus to this place of saying, I'm, no, I'm not the son of God, or yes, I am the son of God. And if he does say yes, and notice how Jesus responds, he says, it is as you say. So let me, let me lay this out to you. Luke twenty two seventy. 70, they say, are you the son of God? Jesus says, it is as you say. And then you can see in verse 71 of Luke chapter 22, they respond, well, then what further testimony do we need? And you can picture them kind of all turning to one another, looking to one another. Everybody should be satisfied. The evidence has been presented. Jesus has just committed, in their opinion, blasphemy. He's equated himself with God. And according to the Jewish people, blasphemy, the penalty for blasphemy, was death. And so as far as the Sanhedrin is concerned, Jesus did that, and thus the case closed. The decision can be reached. Now, here's the problem for the Jewish people. The Jewish people had lost the authority to execute people for violating their particular crimes. Remember, the Romans had come in and conquered the Jewish people. So the Romans were the legal authority of Israel and of Jerusalem here in particular. And so whereas the Jewish leaders have determined that Jesus violated this law and should be put to death, it was the Romans that had the authority to put someone to death. And so the Jews are going to have to now convince the Romans, the Roman authorities, that Jesus should be executed by them. And so they're going to bring Jesus, and you can see it there at the end of verse 1, they're going to deliver him over to Pilate, uh, Pilate being the governor of Jerusalem at that time, specifically Judea, the whole area of Judea. And so it's Pilate who's going to make the decision as to whether Jesus can be executed or not. Now, if you're a student of Scripture, you know in the book of Acts and other places, there were times when the, the Jewish leaders disregarded that little rule, that little stipulation. There were times when the Jewish leaders, uh, they said, you know what, we're going to kill this guy anyway. You remember Acts chapter 7, where Stephen was stoned to death. And it, the Scripture says, Saul, Paul, that is, he looked on and he approved of it. Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. 
he approved of it. He said, yeah, let's kill him. And they did. They stoned uh, Stephen to death. So there were times where the Jews didn't bring their issues to the Roman authorities. But this situation here, this instance involving Jesus in Jerusalem during the Passover week is a different instance altogether. As we pointed out, the Roman officials, they're on edge. There's millions of Jewish people, visitors that have come in. And, and every Passover season was kind of this... Uh, this real patriotic surge, this is who we are, Jewish people, etc. And so there was always this little tension about what might happen and where it might go and what it might lead to. And so the Jews know they need to be pretty careful here. They need to have all their ducks in order here. Uh, and they're going to have to follow all the rules. If they just go and, and kill Jesus and the crowd respond, it's going to be a problem. And so they're going to bring it now to Pilate. And you see in 15.1 it says they bound Jesus and they brought him to the Roman governor. I, I honestly don't think they needed to bind Jesus here. I think Jesus would have walked there because Jesus had already determined that these things that were ahead of him were the things that he would have to go through. And he had determined there, as we said, even in the garden, let not this cup pass, but nevertheless, Father, your will be done. And so Jesus is bound, he's brought, he's led, and he's delivered over to Pilate. Verse 2 picks up. It says, that now Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now, as I pointed out a moment ago, the official charge against Jesus was blasphemy. Pilate, however, wasn't going to execute a person for blasphemy. That was a violation of a Jewish religious law, not a Roman uh, legal law or political law. And so the Jewish leaders, they were going to have to come up with a different offense that Pilate would indeed execute Jesus for. And the offense that they come up with is what we would call insurrection. That Jesus had made himself to be a king, and thus, if he is, he must be looking to overthrow the Caesar. And so that's the charge they present to Pilate. Jesus has declared himself to be a king. Again, Mark doesn't provide us with all of the details of Jesus' interaction with Pilate. And so again, we go back to one of the other Gospels, again, this time to Luke, Luke chapter 23. He gives us a little more information as to what's going on. And he says at this trial, it says, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation forbidding people to give tribute to Caesar and saying himself that he is Christ, the king. A little more details there in Luke's gospel. It seems what's going on, the Jewish leaders, they're, they're just throwing everything uh, at Jesus, throwing all the accusations out there. One of them hopefully will stick and accomplish their goal of having Jesus killed. And so they say he's misleading our nation. They say he's forbidding us from paying taxes to Caesar. They say he declares himself to be a king. And it's in response to that last accusation that, I don't know, but I imagine Pilate's ears sort of perk up a little. Maybe Pilate's looking down, not paying so much attention, but then to that one he looks up. And it says, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Now that's a charge that Pilate has to deal with. Because if Pilate doesn't deal with that charge against Jesus, and it turns out to actually be the case, then Pilate's going to have to answer for that to Caesar. 
how come there was a man in your jurisdiction that claimed to be a king and led this rebellion and you didn't do anything about it? So that's an issue that Pilate has to deal with. And as you see, he asks, are you the king of the Jews? Again, reading just Mark, not a lot of details. In Mark, we read Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you've said so. There's actually a whole lot more to the interaction that thankfully we find in our other gospels. John really digs into this. John's gospel gives us quite a bit more detail. Let me read it to you. This starts, this is in John 18, and it says this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus and he said to him. Now, it's, it's revealed to us elsewhere that the Jews did not want to go inside of Pilate's sort of courtyard there because that would defile them and they couldn't celebrate the Passover. And so the Jewish leaders are outside of Pilate's. Pilate goes out to them. He deals with them. Then, as you see here, he enters back into his headquarters, and now it's just sort of him and Jesus talking while the Jewish leaders are outside. So it says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again. He called Jesus. He said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus then said, now notice, see, there's more here. He says, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus says, you say that I am a king. That's what Mark picked up on and included for us. You said so. That's what Mark says. He says, uh, so you are a king. You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. So again, if we had Mark's gospel alone, it appears that Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus says, I sure am. And then the logical expectation would be that Pilate would say, all right, well, then this guy committed insurrection. Let's have him executed. Fortunately for us, we have John's gospel, which gives us a few more details as to what's going on, particularly that the kingdom of which Jesus speaks is a heavenly kingdom, another worldly, uh, another world kingdom, not of this world. And Pilate, you can even see it in John's uh, writings there, Pilate sees through what it is the Jewish leaders are trying to do. That's when Pilate says, what have you done? Why, your, your leaders delivered over to me. What have you done? And so Pilate sees through it. And he's not really interested in becoming sort of this pawn in their little game. But he does know he has to do something. Now, fortunately for him, in one of the many accusations that the Jews make against Jesus, they bring up sort of this fact that Jesus is from Galilee. And Pilate seizes on that. He sees that as an opportunity to pass this problem of this man that's before him over to somebody else. Again, Mark, in his brevity, he doesn't really mention it. But we do see it in Luke's gospel. Luke says this. This is Luke 23, 5. He says, but they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people throughout all of Judea and from Galilee. Now notice verse 6 of Luke 23. It says, now when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. He asked whether Jesus was a Galilean. A Galilean. And when he heard that Jesus was from Galilee, Pilate takes a deep sigh. Oh, that's wonderful. He lets out his air because now he can pass the problem on to the fellow that's in charge of Galilee. 
Pilate's in charge of Judea. The person in charge of Galilee is Herod. And Herod just so happens to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so he can give the problem of Jesus over to Herod. If you want to read further about it, Luke 23, verse 6 to verse 12 details that trial that Jesus had. The fifth trial that night, the second one before a Roman official, it, it reveals to us what happened at that particular trial before Herod. And I'll let you read that on your own interaction. But eventually, according to Mark here, Jesus ends up back again once more before Pilate. Once more, the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of many things, hoping that something will stick and Pilate will decide to execute the Lord. We see Jesus doesn't answer, he doesn't attempt to defend himself in any way against these accusations, which is very unusual for Pilate. And so Pilate is prompted by the fact that Jesus doesn't respond in any way to all these things that are being brought against him. And you can imagine, that's not true. You're a liar. You're just jealous. You know, you, would, you can imagine what these people would yell out here, the, the condemned, the, the person on trial. And Jesus doesn't do any of that. And so they're throwing all these accusations against him. Pilate is prompted finally to say, have you no answer to make? You see that there in 15.4, have you no answer to make? It's, he's saying, don't you at least want to try and defend yourself um, from these accusations? But again, Mark points out in verse 5, Jesus made no further answer. And that amazes Pilate. It's not hard to imagine what the typical defendant would have been like in those circumstances. And Jesus is very, very different in these circumstances. And so Pilate is amazed. Continuing on in the verse 6, it says, Now at the feast... Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and they began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered Jesus up. <coughs> now we already saw Pilate tried to pass the problem off to Herod. I'll send this Galilean to Herod. He can make the decision. People either be happy with him or mad with him, but I'll be uh, released from this dilemma. Here now, it seems, he tries to pass the problem to the crowd that has gathered around, that he's going to essentially get the crowd to make the decision. And he, it seems he's expecting the crowd is going to say, well, release to us Jesus. And then when all of the chief priests, the scribes, the Sanhedrin members, when they're mad at Pilate, you can say, well, the crowd picked it. I didn't pick it. So again, it seems like he's trying to push the problem off onto someone else. And as we see in verse 6, he says, now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. We know that Pilate knew that Jesus was an innocent man. Luke's gospel actually tells us that Pilate said, I don't find this, any guilt within this man or any charges against him. We also learn in Luke's gospel that he, he adds, and neither did Herod. You know, neither of us officials have found anything worthy of death in this man. And so Pilate knows Jesus is an innocent man, but he also knows that this is a very politically explosive situation that he has on his hands. And so he has to deal with it, and he has to deal with it in a very delicate way, lest this crowd that is before him descend into rioting. And so again, his solution is to turn it over to the people, because surely they can see through what these, uh, 
chief priests, scribes, elders, these religious rulers, they can see through what's going on here as well. But what Pilate doesn't count on is that the chief priests and the others had stirred up the crowd, that they had already enticed the crowd, that when Pilate asked, you say, uh, we want Barabbas, we want Barabbas. And so this whole plan, it backfires against Pilate, I should say. You see in verse 11 there, it says the chief priests stirred up the crowd. And so instead of saying, let Jesus go, they call for the release of a real insurrectionist whose name happens to be Barabbas. Now, it's Matthew's gospel that tells us that Pilate was the one who introduced sort of this dichotomy. Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And so it wasn't that the crowd just randomly happened to yell out Barabbas, but that Pilate says, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? We see that in 27, 17. Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who was called the Christ? Now, we know that there were at least two other prisoners in Jerusalem that evening because Jesus would be crucified a little while later uh, with two other men, one on each side of him. And so in Jerusalem, there's at least those two men, Jesus and Pilate. So there's at least four prisoners. There's probably a whole lot of other people that are prisoners in Jerusalem that evening. And so the fact that Pilate picks Barabbas, it seems to me what he's trying to do is to pick the very worst possible criminal that he could think of and put him up alongside of Jesus so that he can almost force the hand of the crowd. Well, of course, they're never going to pick a guy like Barabbas. He's horrible. He's a terrible person. And yet that is exactly what they do. And that shocks. You see that there. It shocks um, Pilate, Mark 15, 12. He, he, it causes him to ask the question, well, what do you want me to do then with this man, with Jesus? What shall I do with your king of the Jews? And then it must have shocked him even more when they said, well, kill him. They yell out, crucify him, crucify him. Now, look in Mark 15, 14, Pilate then says, why? What evil has he done? He can't believe that this has descended as quickly as it has into this circumstance where they're calling for this Jesus, whom he knows is innocent, to be crucified, and they want an insurrectionist like Barabbas. And so he goes back to them again. They say, what do you want me to do with this man? Crucify him. He says, why? What do you want me to do? And they don't even answer that question. They ignore his question, and they just start chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And things are descending out of control very, very quickly for Pilate. He's lost control of the crowd. It's interesting to take note that less than a week earlier on Palm Sunday, there was a crowd in Jerusalem that was yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they were laying out their branches and laying out their coats on the ground, laying out the red carpet, so to speak, as Jesus entered into the city. And here we are now, five days later, and there's a crowd in Jerusalem that is yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And of course, it could be a different crowd. It likely was a different crowd. But the point is this, there's a lesson here for us in not determining your worth based on the opinion of the crowd, because the crowds are fickle and the crowds change. And very quickly, crowds can be calling uh, for your coronation, and just a week later, they could be calling for your execution. And that's what's going on here with Jesus. And Pilate is now in a very dangerous place. The crowd was becoming a riot. They're openly disagreeing with him. They're shouting over him. They're drowning out his voice with their own. And one thing that we know from history is that Pilate 
had, if you will, let's think of it this way, he had a number of little notes put in his personnel file uh, in the past. There were doubts that the Roman authorities above him had had about uh, regarding his ability to control the masses and control the people. And so if a riot breaks out in Jerusalem during the Passover, that's going to be very problematic um, for Pilate. And so he has to do something, and he recognizes that the thing to do is to put to death an innocent man and satisfy the crowd. And so that's what he finally agrees to. We see it there uh, in Mark 15, 15. It says he agrees to release for them Barabbas. He has Jesus scourged, and he delivers Jesus to be crucified. Again, knowing that Jesus was an innocent man, knowing that Barabbas was a guilty man, he chooses to release and free the guilty man and to put to death the one that is innocent. He passes sentence. Uh, Verse 15, he scourges Jesus, and then he delivers him over to be crucified. Some of your versions may use a different word for uh, scourge. It might use the word flog. It's the same thing. It's just a, a different term that is used. The practice of scourging, the practice of flogging uh, a criminal was the norm before crucifying a criminal. And the process involves strapping a condemned individual over a block of some sort. So you, you can kind of think of a like a portion of a tree stump, for instance, or a large stone, and they would strap the person over that, their hands would be tied, their, their back would be fully extended, and then the Roman officials, the Roman soldiers, they would take a long leather strap, it was called a flagrum, and it was studded with sharp pieces of lead or rock or glass or sometimes even sharpened bones, and those were embedded into that leather strap, and then the person was whipped with that flagrum. And then obviously those pieces, those sharp pieces of stone and rock and bone would dig into the person's skin. And then as they pulled the whip off, it would rip open their skin, tear, literally tear their back to pieces. It's commonly thought that the person would receive 39 lashes. But in actuality, that was a Jewish custom. These are Roman officials. And there was no limit to the number of times that they could bring that whip down upon the convicted man's back. There's references in first century literature which says that the person would be flogged until the flesh hung from their back. We're told that in some cases, prisoners were actually disemboweled by the flagellum. Few prisoners retained consciousness through the process. One historian I read pointed out that one of the purposes of the scourging was to get the person to confess other crimes. That is, that they would they would essentially say to the person, we will stop beating you if you confess to some other crimes that you've committed as well. And so we know with the Lord, there were no other crimes for him to confess. And so the beatings must have, that Jesus must have endured through this scourging must have been horrific for uh, him to undergo and for anyone to observe. Jesus was scourged that evening. And after having been flogged or scourged, Jesus was delivered over, it says in verse 15, to be crucified. Verse 16 picks up, it says, And the soldiers led him away inside, and the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed Jesus in a purple cloak, and they twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. 
And they were striking his head with a reed, and they were spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and they put his own clothes back on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus was delivered to be crucified, but before they would do that, the cruel Roman soldiers would first, they'd have a little fun. And we see a number of examples of that in two, three verses. First, it says they clothe Jesus with a purple cloak because every king uh, has to have their royal garb. And so they would lay upon him this purple cloak. And remember that Jesus has just had his back uh, mercilessly uh, scourged. And so even just the laying of that cloak upon the back, the raw back of the Lord, no doubt was excruciating. Then it says in verse 17 that they sort of weave together a crown of thorns, which was designed to imitate the gilded wreath of leaves that the actual king would wear. And I think it's pretty safe to assume that these bloodthirsty soldiers didn't gently or gingerly lay that wreath upon Jesus' head, but rather they no doubt drove those thorns into his brow and into his head. Next, we read in verse 18 that they begin to salute Jesus. Now, the way they would salute the real king, Caesar, would be hail Caesar. And so they begin to mock the Lord and say, hail, king of the Jews. Matthew tells us that they put a reed into Jesus' hand, sort of a scepter that a king would carry. They put that into Jesus' hand. And then Mark goes on to tell us that they then take that out of his hand and they begin to beat the Lord over the head with that reed. They begin to spit on the Lord, we read in Mark's passage. They begin to kneel down in false adoration before the Lord. And remember that prior to all of this, Jesus already underwent the horrific, scourging process, which was designed to weaken a criminal prior to crucifixion. Verse 20 goes on, it says, Now when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, they put his own clothes back on him, and they led him away to crucify him. Mark gives us very little details other than that. They led him away to crucify him. He doesn't go into all the details of the crucifixion. And part of the reason I think Mark doesn't do so is because his actual first century readers, they knew all about crucifixion. Jesus, Jesus and those few guys that were with him, they were not the only people to be crucified by the Romans. Tens of thousands of people, almost up to 100,000 uh, people were crucified by the Romans. And so they knew all about it. John, or excuse me, Mark didn't have to go into it much more. You and I were probably a little bit less familiar with the whole process here. And we've already seen the initial step of crucifixion. The initial step of crucifixion is to scourge the person. The next step would be to strap the crossbar of the cross. So uh, we, we all, we have these pictures of Jesus carrying sort of a, a T cross, um, with him, it's already put together. In reality, that's probably not what occurred here. Uh, there were two pieces to the cross. The, the crossbar is called the patebulum, and then the upright ball was, uh, bar was called the simplex. And the simplex was probably already in place uh, up on the place that he was going to be crucified. We know that to be Golgotha. Jesus was forced to carry this crossbar, this patebulum. Uh, and the way they did it is, first the person was scourged, then they would be let out, they would lay upon their shoulders the crossbar, they would tie their hands uh, to the crossbar, their wrist to the crossbar, and then the prisoner would carry their own cross to the place of execution, 
And then when they got to that place of execution, the crossbar, the, the patabulum would be attached to the simplex and the person would be raised and they would be crucified. But the, Jesus had to carry his own cross. You remember early on in our study of Mark, chapter 8, that Jesus said, look, anyone who wants to come after me, anyone who wants to follow me must, he said, take up their cross uh, and then do so. That's what Jesus is referring to. This procession that Jesus is going through, where he is carrying his own cross to his place of execution, that's what Jesus was referring to. And his disciples knew what he meant. And so when Jesus said to his disciples, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your own cross and do so, this was the picture they would have had in mind. A person carrying their own cross was carrying their cross to a place where they would die. And so Jesus here, the cross upon his shoulders. The next aspect of crucifixion, the condemned man would be paraded through the streets. <coughs> a centurion official, a Roman official, would be on horse. There would be a herald that was there as well, somebody calling out to the crowd. The, the crowd would, the people would uh, line the streets, so to speak. And this horse would go by, and the man, the herald would go by, and then the man with the cross, and no doubt all the guards that were there as well. And the herald would call out the crime for which this person was being executed. It was their way of advertising, the Romans' way of advertising to the people of that town, if you commit this crime, this is what's going to happen to you as well. Same thing that they would do when... When the person was crucified, they would put a little board above their heads that said, this is, the pen this is the crime that they committed. And obviously the crucifixion is the penalty for that crime. And so the herald would call it out. This man was an insurrectionist. This man said he was a king, whatever it may be. We also know from history that the Roman soldiers, they're mocking. It didn't stop back when they were pretending Jesus was a king. Because we know, historians tell us, that what they would also do, while the criminal's hands were tied to this bar, this crossbar, and thus had no ability to protect himself if he were to fall forward, that they would tie a rope to the prisoner's, uh, one of his ankles. And as the prisoner is walking and struggling with this heavy crossbar that was on their shoulders, they would pull out their leg, and the person would go falling forward. And having no ability to put their hands out, they would come and they'd crash their face onto the ground with 80, 90, 100-pound block of wood crashing down on the back of their head as well. And so you can imagine how painful that would have been as they did that to the Lord it's no wonder we read in verse 21 that at some point in this process, Jesus is unable to carry his cross any further. For in 21, we see they compel a passerby, a guy by the name of Simon of Cyrene, and they make him carry Jesus's cross. Jesus had been beaten as he was, and so, and he was already weakened by this whole process. And so at some point along the parade, Jesus is no longer physically able to do what the Romans had been forcing him to do. And so they compel a visitor to the town. They compel a man. They, he's called a passerby. This means he's a tourist. And his name is Simon of Cyrene. And they compel him to carry Jesus' cross to the place of execution. You remember in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he said, if somebody forces you to go with them one mile, then you go with them two. That, this is what Jesus is talking about. The someone is a Roman official. And a Roman official had the authority at any time they could simply point to an individual and they say, come here, I have a job for you. And you have to do it. And so this, uh, 
Cyrenian, this fellow from Cyrene, this man Simon, he is compelled by the Roman guards to carry Jesus' cross. I'm sure not what he had planned. Almost certainly, this guy came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Uh, and now he comes face to face with the Passover Lamb of God who had come to take away the sin of the world. Remarkable. It's unusual that Mark tells us his name. Mark tends to be, as we've been seeing today, kind of uh, vague in a lot of the things he talks about. But yet here, he tells us his name. It's Simon. He tells us where he's from, Cyrene, which is northern Africa. Today we call it Libya. And then he tells us the name of his two kids, Alexander and Rufus. And I think that there's only one reason why Mark gives such detail, even the name of his kids. And I think it's because Simon goes on to become a believer. Alexander, Rufus, they become believers. They're known in the church that Mark will be writing this letter to. And there's no other real reason to point out who the guy was, where he was from, what his kids' names were. And yet this guy, having come face to face with the Lord, becomes a follower of the Lord. And, you know, I, I look at it almost like, well, how could he not become a follower of the Lord, being that close to this scenario here? So he carries the cross. He brings it to the place. You'll see in verse 22, it says, They brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he would not take it. They crucified him. They divided up his garments among them. And they cast lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, when they did this. So Jesus was actually crucified. We talk about it being in Jerusalem. He was actually crucified just outside of the city of Jerusalem. We talked about the way that uh, Jesus had been leaving Jerusalem and going to the Mount of Olives. This place of the scroll is not too far from the Mount of Olives. It's just outside of the city proper, if you will. We might call it a suburb today. The place is... Uh, known as Golgotha. Uh, that's an Aramaic word. Most of us don't know Aramaic. Most of Mark's readers did not. And so he defines it. He calls it the place <coughs> of the skull, Golgotha. Golgotha, as I said, that's an Aramaic word. The Latin word for the place of the skull is the word Calvaria. And you can hear it's where we get the English word Calvary. And so he's brought to Calvary's hill. He's brought to this place of the skull. He's brought to this place in Aramaic known as Golgotha. And you'll notice back in 1520, in Mark 1520, it says, and they led him out to crucify him. But notice here in verse 22, it says, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha. And it appears that Jesus is now so weak through the strain of the night before, through the beatings and all the trials and back and forth throughout Jerusalem and all that, that Jesus is so weak that he's not even able to walk, let alone carry his crossbar. And so they have to bring him there. They have to carry him there. He gets there, verse 23, they offer him wine mixed with myrrh. This is, if you will, uh, not even if you will, it is, it's the first act of mercy, it seems, in the entire evening. They offer him some wine mixed with myrrh. And the purpose of it was to deaden the senses, uh, to, uh, to, to give the guy a little bit of relief even um, from some of the incredible pain. Uh, it's pretty certain that there were groups of elderly Jewish women that did this for the various Jewish men. It was sort of their act of service and mercy 
uh, to those Jewish men. So it's not the Romans that are offering this, it's these Jewish women that are offering it, but the Romans allowed it. It was uh, anesthetic of sorts um, to deaden some of the pain. But we see in verse 23, Jesus refused to take the drink. Because Jesus is determined, he has determined, that he was going to enter into this time of the cross with nothing that would in any way hinder him from fully entering into all that the cross involved, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual pain, all of it that it involved. Because Jesus, we know, he had come to this world to give his life as a ransom for many upon the cross, and he was going to do so with his faculties unhindered in any way. He would not take the drink. Verse 24, and so they crucified him. They divided his garments among them, and they cast lots for them. Notice that Mark doesn't go anywhere further. They crucified him. He doesn't say any more details than that. Because again, as I pointed out, the first century uh, people that lived, those that would have been reading his gospel, they know, knew full well the horrors of crucifixion. All Mark needed to say was, and they crucified him, and they knew what that meant. There was no reason for Mark to tell his readers that they would strip Jesus bare for all to see as he hung upon the cross because the first century Jews knew that this is how the Romans crucified a person. There was no reason for Mark to include the fact that the Romans would have driven these nine-inch lead nails through each wrist of Jesus. And uh, the picture, if you will, in your mind, those railroad spikes uh, that uh, we use here to secure the railroad ties. Um, those big nails driven through the wrist of Jesus. Mark doesn't have to say that, mention that, because these first century Jews would have known that. That's what happened to every crucified criminal. There was no reason for Mark to tell his audience that the Romans would actually bend the crucified person's legs a bit. And then they would affix those legs to a small little wooden block, uh, block that was called a sedecula. And that was attached then to the cross. And that they would do this by driving those nine-inch nails through the front of the foot, back out of a heel, through that block, into uh, the upright of the cross. And he doesn't have to tell his readers that because, again, the first century Jewish people had seen that happen to thousands of individuals that were crucified in first century Israel by the Romans. And Mark doesn't have to explain that the purpose of that little block is not to alleviate any suffering, but rather to prolong the victim's suffering. Because as that little block, what that little block did was it allowed the person whose legs were bent to just push up on it, straighten their legs a little bit, raise their chest up so that they could take a deep breath before collapsing back down from the weight of their own body and the weight of gravity. Mark doesn't have to tell those readers that we need to know those sorts of things. But Mark's readers, they knew about each one of these things. And so all Mark says is they crucified the Lord. Well, he does go on to add that the soldiers began to gamble, if you will, over Jesus's clothes. They, they cast lots over his clothes that they had stripped off of him. We see that in verse 24. And little did these soldiers know, they, I'm sure they had no idea, that they were fulfilling a 1,000-year-old prophecy that described that this very thing would happen at the foot of the cross. We read this in Psalm chapter 22. It says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. 
They have pierced my hands and my feet, and I can count all of my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. Now notice verse 18. And they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. One of the things I say again and again as I'm I'm teaching is that the cross was no accident. This was the means by which God would save sinners by paying the penalty of their sin. And this was the means foreordained by God before even the foundation of the world was laid by which humanity could and would be saved. Again, the cross is no accident. Again, remember Jesus' prayer in the garden. He said, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass. And then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. There was no other way. God would make him who knew no sin to be sin for us and to take the penalty of that sin upon himself. And he did this, as we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, so that we might become the righteousness of God. The cross was the means by which God would save his people. And thus, the means by which you and I must come to God by faith in the work of his son. I'll remind you that Jesus declared these words. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. No one comes to the Father but through me. I said a few weeks back <coughs> that the material of chapters 14 and 15, that it's difficult material uh, for me to consider, for us to consider. It's not very pleasant to see Jesus despised and to see him rejected in this way. But I'm reminded as we consider these things this week that it is crucial for us that we come back to these events again and again and again because these events are the only foundation upon which our faith stands. Isaiah the prophet who wrote about 700 years before Jesus, he saw these events, quote unquote, in in a vision of some sorts, however it is that God revealed it to him, he saw these events 700 years before they happened. And he wrote of them in the 53rd chapter of his book. And when we began today, I asked you to go back uh, and to kind of put your finger in Isaiah 53. I imagine if you did, your finger fell asleep by now. So hopefully you used a pen or a little string of some sorts. But Isaiah chapter 53, I would like us all to turn there and consider And we've turned there before and looked at these things. But again and again, we remind ourselves. Picking up Isaiah 53, verse 4. (coughs) Excuse me. It says this, Surely he has borne our griefs, and he has carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent, and so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Verse 10, yet 
it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. See and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Verse 12, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and he makes intercession for the transgressors. <coughs> Consider some of the things in there. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, verse 4 says. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, verse 5 tells us. Verse 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And why? Because look at verse 11, because by his knowledge shall the righteous one make many to be accounted righteous. Many have no difficulty buying into the fact that God loves them. There are a lot of people that live on this earth that could wonder, well, how could God not love me? Someone as wonderful as I am. The, the reality is such a person is in a dangerous place because they run the very real risk of believing that there's nothing that they need to be saved from. But there are many others that struggle with a very, very different struggle. There are many others that know that they are a sinner. There are many others that know they have fallen short of God's perfect standard. And so they begin to wonder, could God ever love one such as them? This morning, if that thought resonates with, within your heart, I want to encourage you, remind you, direct you, tell you, teach you, whatever it is, wherever it is you're at, that you need to look no further than at the material that we have considered this morning. John the Apostle, he would write later on in one of his epistles, and John was there at the foot of the cross. And later on, he would write this, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. God doesn't just tell us that he loves us, but he has undeniably demonstrated to us that he loves us. And I'll close with these words from the Apostle Paul. He wrote these in the book of Romans, and he said this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so if you struggle with that truth, that you are loved by God, then I want to encourage you this morning, settle it in your heart this morning. And if need be, again tomorrow morning, and the morning after that, and the morning after that. You are loved by God. So much so that it was your sin that separated from you from him, but it was his willingness as the only one uh, that was able to pay the penalty for that sin so that you and I could be brought into right relationship with him. And the place where that is done is Calvary's Hill. Amen? Well, we rejoice in that truth this morning. And I want to say this. Look, if you're watching and you doubt the love of God and you wonder if God could love someone like you considering all the many things that you have done, I want you to know that you can be forgiven of your sin. There is a way. 
Jesus said again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father unless he goes through me. And the passageway to him is the cross of Jesus Christ. If you don't understand what that means and you'd like to, then I want to encourage you to reach out to us here at Calvary Chapel, connecting at ccmercer.com, or just go on our website and find our phone number, and one of our pastors would be delighted to speak with you and to help you get started in your walk with the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do pray for any that are watching, Lord, that are uh, hearing that. They're considering where they are with God. They're wondering if God could love such a one as them. Lord, I pray that even right now that you would break into their heart, you'd open up their heart to see that Jesus Christ has demonstrated the love of God when he went to the cross despite the fact that they were a sinner. And Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm them with the sense both of their need and also the solution to that need, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for all the rest of us that have had that situation in our lives happen already. We've come to the cross. We've recognized our sin. We saw Jesus Christ as the payment of our sin, and we placed our eternal trust in him. Lord, I pray that you would use this familiar passage then to us to stir us up once more just to how good you are, how much you love us, how wise you are, your wonderful plan. And so, Father, pour out your Spirit upon each one of us, even as we go from these places, based on these things we've considered today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.